in terms of the counterculture, I mean, the best way to distill it is there's a Norman, a brilliant Norman O'Brien quote, where he says that the ego is the first private property. The whole drive of the whole culture, from LSD through all the different techniques of meditation, the way that yoga was used, everything is all directed to this thing of ego dissolution. And at this point, these these theorists, they're quintessentially theorists of, of the self. And what they were entranced by with Freud, most especially, was the idea of liberation and sexual liberation. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today we speak with Matthew Ingram, author of Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness. Together we chatted about a host of topics, including Allen Ginsberg, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Thunder tour bus, Stan Groff, LSD psychotherapy, the Prague Spring, psychoanalysis, Freudian Marxism, ego dissolution, the CIA, MKUltra, Tom Wolfe, libertarians, cultural revolt, and more. Matthew Ingram, thanks so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thanks very much for having me along, Sam. Your book is Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness. It's a really fascinating read. It's so fun. It has an encyclopedic kind of take on the counterculture, on everything that people care about, the hippies, the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, beyond. I want to ask you, what's the basic thesis of this book? Why is wellness and the wellness industry interesting to you at this historical moment? Well, certainly I came at it, um, the subject, through um, an interest in the counterculture and music. From that, I found a lot of the things that would have interested me as a sort of a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old around the counterculture um, were musical. But as I researched it deeper and became more familiar with it, I found that that really a lot of those things that I I was familiar with were actually um, had their roots in, in deeper things in in meditation in in yoga uh, in the psychedelic experience um and in food and so my interest wandered and i think i've noticed that happen um certainly in the festival culture in the uk as well we have a lot more wellness festivals which is it's a kind of shift between what would have once been a music festival is now a wellness festival so i guess i'm sort of part of that demographic that um probably is experiencing that a shift in interest. Yeah, yeah. I have this question for you. You know, what, what's your background as it pertained to the counterculture? Having grown up in Britain, was your experience and you th- and I think other people's experience of the counterculture akin to that of an American's? And sort of, you know, contained within this question is 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 the is the idea was the UK having a countercultural experience on the same timeline as 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 in the US? I think definitely. I mean, I think certainly in, um, I mean, just to look at my record collection, I have the 60s and 70s, uh, uh, I have a UK section and an American section, but for, I'm sorry, for the 60s, I have a UK section and an American section. And then for the 70s, I have a a rock section. So, you know, it's like, certainly there was a sort of a love affair, a mutual love affair after the Beatles between the two cultures. But certainly growing up, um, and following um, these things through the music scene, um, uh, uh, the, that sense of the counterculture was still there very strongly, certainly in the music journalism of, of the 80s. You know, it was always this sort of ghost-like presence in the background 
of the counterculture. And then we had sort of what I would class a very strong return. So the, the 90s and Acid House in the UK, which was a very much a very strong phenomenon, that was, that was extremely like a, a second coming of, of those ideas. And indeed, the same sort of people, you know, gained a second currency. So Leary was omnipresent in the 90s when I was raving and, um, and all those ideas, you know, you suddenly have um, documentaries about the Merry Pranksters being made. And so, and obviously LSD was very current at that time. So for a long stretch, I think right the way through to about 96, we had what I would call a kind of very long 60s. And I think that that experience certainly tarries with, with my um, recollection of, of what it was like to visit America and the preoccupations of my American friends and, and how that, that journalism, those ethos and that ethos was sort of fundamental to how we all grew up. Whether it's the same now, I'm not so sure. But that, as I say, those ideas have you know, mutated and, and we find them in different places, perhaps. Now, I'm going to go right for the meat of this book in respect to some stuff that's interesting to me. And I thought it might be fun for the over the course of this interview for me just to kind of pepper you with questions and for you to just, you know, respond and, and uh, tell us all about uh, the stuff that's uh, inside of this book. Because really, this book has just got like a, a laundry list of uh, the cast and characters and the concerns yeah. of, uh, of the counterculture. So... Talk to me a little bit about, you, you found it relevant to focus on, on Stan Groff, right? And he's thought of as the godfather of LSD psychotherapy. Talk to me a little bit about Stan Groff and why you felt he was important. Well, um, Stan is, is, is a, my experience of interviewing Stan. I actually interviewed Stan quite early on in the process. But at each point, I would interview people afterwards. They were kind of stunned uh, and, and, you know, overwhelmed that I had actually spoken to him. Um, and so my kind of the estimation of him, uh, my understanding of him grew progressively through the book until by the end of it, it was like, oh, my God, I had the opportunity to, you know, sit down and, and, and talk to him. It actually, in some senses, he, he's not an obviously countercultural person. I think it's something that he he downplays. I think he's always had to stay. He think he's played a very clever political game with the establishment. He's always managed to keep his show on the road where a lot of people have gone by the wayside. And I think part of the way that he's done that is, is to very cleverly not overemphasize certain aspects and, and the, the kind of the rebellious aspects or the transformative aspects or the aspects of what he does, which are threatening to the status quo, which is very much, you know, the counterculture's message. So, but the, I think those are there in spades. I think that, you know, I've heard it, you know, from a number of sources that about Stan's um, role in the Czech Spring um, when he was in Czechoslovakia and, and, and how LSD played a part in the revolution over there and how his connection to um, Václav Havel and all worked out on the ground, which is, you know, in terms of a countercultural experience, I mean, you don't get more cutting edge than that. Talk and to me about that for a moment. How, what, what was Stan Groff's role to, uh, in, in the Prague Spring, if, if, if that is true? Well, I mean, obviously it's, I'd have to, you know, I have to slightly walk on eggshells because it's things that I've read in places and I've been told by people. Yeah. Um, but um, basically, um, the of the first generation of revolutionaries, I think a lot of them, Sprova in Czechoslovakia uh, was, was making extremely good LSD very early, but also they stand 
was working with a thera therapeutically with um, Sandor Celeste very early as well, and and he was giving he was throwing throwing is the wrong word, but he was organising LSD sessions with you know the cutting edge of um, you know the young political thinkers and the avant-garde artists in Czechoslovakia in Prague, and I think that there is a su suggestion that that revolutionary impulse in in Czechoslovakia had some some part to do with you know his his behind the scenes work essentially and i think it's i think one only really has to look at how um you know when vaclav havel who was you know frank zappa's you know friend and pal became the president you know the, one of the first things well, that happened was that you know stan is awarded an honor um, and made a kind of an honor honorary citizen um, so I think that speaks volumes, but I think that, you know, that revolutionary aspect and certainly in his first psychedelic experiences are very much about how this has a transformative experience and how it changes your engagement with society and culture. And, um, you know, very much he focuses more broadly, generally on, on therapy, but there's always that element that this is something that transforms people and that transforms you know, people's engagement with reality. So, uh, and in a revolutionary way, in the sense of building a new society. So, uh, one one thing that I found very interesting going through your book was this uh, focus on schools of psychotherapy. And for you, it was crucial that Stan Groff, in fact, was a psychoanalyst uh, to begin with. Can you speak a little bit about why it was important that psychoanalysis was the, sort of the base upon which the LSD psychotherapy was 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 placed? Right. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, you've really cut to the absolute center of um, the uh, the situation there with, with LSD psychotherapy, which is that although uh, some of the earliest obviously came through psychiatry, so there's the distinction there between psychiatry, which treats which treats the mental health situation as something that can be ameliorated by the use of drugs and then psychotherapy which treats it as being helped by through the psychodynamic psychodynamic situation um, through therapy and through you know essentially conversation although the the, the earliest vanguard um, the likes of Humphrey Osmond for instance um, were psychiatrists I think really the absolutely you know the key intervention came when psychotherapists realized that um, LSD could be used as a tool um, to basically expedite the therapeutic process. And you basically, you can cut in much deeper, much quicker, get through, you know, every action, um, form, you know, work out the, uh, what the complexes are um, and, and basically, you know, cut to the heart of the matter much more quickly. The, it was the essentially the Jungian therapists. So in the UK, the likes of Sanderson, uh, who was a very early proponent of that of that position, but but obviously in the most iconic way, um, Stan Groff, who uh, saw the potential of psychedelics in therapy. You talk about LSD's transition from the clinical setting to a force in society at large, and actually you, you say it has much to do with the Beats and Allen Ginsberg. So talk to me about that. Uh, I think that Ginsberg, probably more than anyone, appointed himself um, the cheerleader um, for LSD. I mean, obviously, Leary had, had a role, but it was really through buying, being magnetized by Ginsberg. I mean, you know, Ginsberg was one of the very earliest um, 
I think he had in Menlo Park in um, part of the uh, a military um, program. Um, like Kesey in a way, who also had it very early, but, but Ginsburg just got everywhere um, and was just a fabulous cheerleader. And he had this reputation through the beats already of a kind of, um, you know, being a, this attractive revolutionary. And I think more than anybody, he, he galvanized the student populations, it made it hit, basically. Um, he attached it to, you know, concepts that were in the air. So he really created the strength in the relationship or the understanding of it in relation to Eastern philosophy. So, for instance, when Ginsburg visits the Dalai Lama, he wants his question essentially is he wanted to know about the use of psychedelics by Tibetan monks. Right the way through his experiences with Buddhism, he he maintains the value for him of, of psychedelics. Even with uh, Trumpa, when he's hanging out with Trumpa in uh, Naropa, he's still singing the praises and beating the drum. Right, so there was an interesting part of your book when you were talking about sort of, I, I don't know if I'm going to uh, mangle what you wrote, but you said that the counterculture began with Ginsburg, perhaps in the mid-50s, uh, or the hippies. Yes, the hippies began the, with Ginsburg in the mid-50s and then ended in the mid-70s when he was taken off of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder uh, bus. I was wondering if you could just sort of uh, speak to that for a quick second. Um, well, Looking at the the whole thing of the era of, of the counterculture, I mean, it, it's it's generally segmented into two halves of the beat era and the the hippie era. But but really, there's there's so much um, you know collusion and you know the same characters you know appear through the continuum. And for instance, Ginsburg is is someone who's as as much as important to the hippies as he is to the beatniks. So. You know, when looking, obviously, when you talk about the counterculture, there's a temptation of, of really knowing when to start. I mean, are you serious? His book on, on the counterculture, he talks about uh, Abraham, the prophet Abraham to Acid House. So it's really like, where do, you, where do you draw a meaningful line about when the counterculture starts and when it ends? And, and, and for me, you know, Ginsburg reading how in, the, I think it's 1956, and then to the Rowing Thunder Tour, which is really where but, but what happened was that um, he was brought on um, the tour to, you know, read Hal, basically. Um, and then I think Ginsburg kind of, um, Dylan, I think, got fed up with him a bit. And then he was demoted to a baggage hander. And I think that that's the arc of this kind of excitement and fascination with those ideas. And as well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it gives an indication of how the, the music scene essentially swallowed all those ideas and impetuses, and in a way, um, capitalize them to some degree. But for instance, you know, the, one can view the, the Grateful Dead as a vehicle for the counterculture. You know, it's like, where did it all go? It went in a number of places. I mean, the, where it mainly went was rock music. But, you know, it also went into science fiction, and also it went a little bit into um, marketing, bizarrely. But, but you know, the, the big one was, was rock music. So that, that, that moment where he's uh, ejected off the Rolling Thunder tours, it's quite a neat sort of like beginning, beginning and end for the book. Hmm. I like how you're bringing it to back to the Grateful Dead. My wife and I are just watching this documentary that's on Amazon about the Grateful Dead. I think it's called Long Strange Trip. I'm a huge deadhead, or used to be. I mean, for five years of my life, I only listened to the Grateful Dead. Um, and I was always fascinated to learn that they had been the house band for Ken Kesey's acid tests. And also to learn that 
they had kind of met in Menlo Park. So I want to ask you about these early days in Menlo Park. Why the hell was Menlo Park the epicenter of some psychedelic revolution, including you mentioned Ken Kesey. And Ken Kesey had been, in your book, you write that in 1959, he was volunteering for these LSD experiments through the Veterans Hospital in Menlo Park. He was encouraged by a friend to go along um, and he... um, he was paid to take LSD obviously like was, uh, was kind of common in those days um, and just had the most overwhelming experience. Um, I think one of the things as well that the, the, the Hampton Kesey was that they used uh, the strobe light on him. So, um, and this is one of the kind of the motifs of um, the early LSD psychiatric research was I think um, they would wear the strobe and it's certainly something that happened to Stan Groff as well. And I think, it, you know, it intensifies the, uh, the hallucinations to a great degree. I think there's literally the sensation that things are, are, are pouring out of, uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the light itself. You write in the book that there was a connection between the tests that he was taking, uh, being paid for in Menlo Park at the Veterans Hospital and the CIA program, MKUltra. For, for those of us who are not familiar with MKUltra, can you sort of shed some light on that? When LSD first became, you know, available, it was so so remarkably powerful that many different organisations scratched their head to figure out how this was going to be useful. I mean, Groff. One of the reasons why Groff twigged on LSD psychotherapy was that the the vial that came to arrive to him with Sandos had a uh, a, a note with it which suggested that you know it could be possibly used in, in psychotherapy but for instance the military um also were, were fascinated by by the idea of, of there being some use to it and the, see there's and the, the first things that they assumed that it was going to be useful for were with what's described as the manchurian candidate there was a a, a real fear and distrust about how a lot of high-profile American spies were being made to spill their secrets to the Chinese, um, and so there was a kind of a, in a kind of Cold War era race to develop a substance that was going to be able to allow American troops or American military to find out people to basically shed the secrets w- without without being sort of killed or maimed in torture. So, so that was the first stage, but then. What happened was that that didn't really work terribly well. And so in just in the same way that, for instance, that um, Humphrey Osmond first started out thinking about psych- psychedelics as psycho- psychotomimetics, as in ways in which the, um, the, uh, psych- the schizophrenic experience could be modelled for people who hadn't experienced schizophrenia and then moved to thinking of maybe it could be used for alcoholics. The, the army, in the same way, rooted around and thought okay well it's not working for this but it's so powerful we've got to be able to use it for something and so mk ultra which i know is uh, explored in john ronson's um, book the men who stare at goats was the, the idea that uh, you would have a could be a remote operative so you would be able to take lsd and you'd be able to um predict the uh, location of a, a missile strike or so it really it's quite remarkable because it really buys into the fully the mystic properties of of lsd uh, and the uh, the assumptions of, of what are possible under psychedelics i mean you hear a lot in primitive cultures about um people taking uh, mushrooms and then to, as a tool for finding lost sheep and things like that 
but this is like the exact uh, analog analogy of that where it's like we can use these drugs to uh, um, read minds on remote and do telepathic messaging and all that so mk ultra was the full crazy uh i love the i love the mk ultra tale it's so perfect for lsd because lsd is and psychedelics in general are these so-called ego dissolving uh substances they're magic they're magic in that way because they take us out of our you know horribly regimented human just awful hunter gathering murdering type of people and break us into these peaceful, bizarre beings, right? And then there's this desire by people who are not on the psychedelics, who are still operating within the confines of this this ego-bound identity to say, how can we weaponize this? How can we make this, how can we harness this magic, this magic that is that is bound to disempower us? How can we use it to empower us further? It's just, this is a wonderful uh, little fable. But there's a, I mean, there's this sort of, um, there's dissenting view, certainly in, in the counterculture. I mean, for instance, Burroughs, uh, his theory at the time was that um, the LSD was being introduced by the government to make the, uh, the young people um, more pliant um, and able to deal with, you know. So, so, so as much as, um, you know, we can, you know, appreciate the uh, how how these substances work to dismantle society i mean there, there were there were voices that were were saying well actually you know and and, and the borrows uh, his the example that he gave was 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 of how the um, the cia were using the you know the the bodies of dead servicemen in vietnam to ship opiates into uh, the ghettos of america so he said they're capable of that they're capable of giving us lsd to make us peaceful so um who knows what was going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, one thing I really enjoy about your book is how you sort of had everybody weigh in. Bur- I mean, you read about Burroughs. Burroughs was no fan of uh, of LSD, isn't that correct? That's right. That's right. And 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 um, he's uh, he wrote very scabrously about it. He was he didn't think it was anything. He didn't think he was contemptuous of, of Ginsburg and, and Kerouac as well. Was was um, disliked the uh, psilocybin experience. Kerouac's um, had this kind of nomic quote which was that um walking on water wasn't built in a day which is what he used to to uh to, to try to shut down the the irrepressible leery but no yeah i mean i think it's um i've tried to certainly currently we live in an era of tremendous optimism about psychedelics uh, and i i certainly I, sh- I share a lot of those um optimisms but it, it does remind me having surveyed the the history of, of us being slightly somewhere slightly similar to about 1963 in, in a kind of a repeating cycle. I, I hope that uh, that, it, that it all works out better this time. And certainly the work of the work that maps are doing, for instance, um, you know, I, I think that there's a very good, very good chance, certainly with, with MDMA that, um, that we'll have a situation where we can actually you keep using these substances constructively but um but but going through the whole um you know rise and fall of, of the whole the whole thing um and and seeing you know the studying the lives of you know the casualties and and, and seeing all the good and the bad you certainly wish that you hope that it's going to work out better this time for everybody yeah and i assume that you're talking about sort of like the the timothy leary led democratization of psychedelics widely put out into the into the culture including young people who weren't ready for it as well as 
people with um, psyches that, that were disposed to schizophrenic tendencies, et cetera, et cetera. All the people who could have started off on a, on a sort of, you know, neutral uh, level with psychedelics, but then they were fed all of the fear from the media that thus inducing the, the negative trips and, and whatnot right. and kind of turned into a real shitstorm. That's right. And, and, and I think that, you know, and even as something as basic as, as set and setting, um, I mean, the set and setting was, I mean, that's Kesey's whole um, strategy was to completely upturn set and setting. That's what, you know, the acid tests were about was let's just freak everybody out instead of creating a nurturing environment. So let's just freak the hell out of everybody. But, uh, but, but as well, I think in terms of that era, uh, and certainly against the background of the high Ashbury, I think that there was a, a problem in that, that it was all the rebellious and also disturbed um, people from right across the States, um, people escaping very difficult family backgrounds, coming as you know, young, impressionable people to San Francisco, um, un, you know, unhealthy, you know, malnutrition often, you know, people with crushier core and, and then, that feeding into, I mean, you know, it's, it's obvious that it's going to be a, a maelstrom. And I guess, you know, something like Ultimate is, is, is you know, the end game mm. for that particular scene. So, you know, I'm optimistic, uh, but, you know, so um, hopefully. Yeah, I, I, I feel optimistic as well. And, you know, we, we happen to be really lucky with the current insane administration that's leading the government of the United States that for some reason they have no problem with the advancing uh, legal status of MDMA therapy for PTSD. The, the Food and Drug Administration of the United States has been remarkably progressive. I, I don't understand it myself, but I'm okay with it. You know, I wanted to ask you to talk about, I want to, talk, I want to hear you talk about a little bit about the Harvard Psilocybin Project, because I don't think everybody knows about it, and its subsequent sabotage by Andrew Whale, which definitely not everyone uh, knows about. So could you speak about that for a moment. Sure. Well, um, <clears throat> I, 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 it, firstly, I mean, Leary um, got a place at Harvard. He was, was brought on as an assistant professor, which was an extremely, obviously, prestigious position to be in. Um, you know, I, I can't think that someone uh, of his, I mean, he, he, his, his CV before that is, is completely wild. Um, and he was uh, he was always an incredible troublemaker. And I think nowadays uh, that's the sort of thing that probably wouldn't he probably wouldn't slip through the system. You know, and, and once there, you know, the, the two of them, um, Richard Alpert and him, basically uh, managed to um, turn on the uh, the undergraduates. And, and, and firstly, by the, you know, the, the, the route of getting people to volunteer um, to uh, take part in psilocybin trials. Um, and then, um, but I think what happened was that, you know, the, the excitement uh, and the, uh, the sort of, it was a building momentum. And I think very shortly, very quickly it became that people were, students were dropping out and going to sit on the banks of the Ganges um, and write to their parents telling them that they'd found God and, you know, they were, they were leaving the university. And I think the whole fabric of the trials um, got basically way out of hand and and i think it, it um you know there was a also i think competition between students to be you know in the clique behind all of this it is um uh, in the in the outset was um was aldous huxley who 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 was strongly encouraging leary to 
you know, take on the, basically the brightest and the best. I think that was uh, the original idea for all the Huxley's ideas, certainly, was, was to turn on the elite, which I think they obviously was what they were doing at Harvard. But um, when Ginsburg visited them, um, his view was, you know, this is too good for the elite. And I think um, Lee reused his position at Harvard to go and um, approach and involve other people and, and to spread it, basically, in a way that he, if he didn't have that um, respectability, or he wouldn't have been able to do. What happened was that Andrew Vile wrote a, a paper for the Harvard Crimson, which was the, uh, the university newspaper. It's basically exposing what was going on. Um, and, um, and actually Leary, um, Leary resigned. He was fed up with it anyway, and in a sense that his preoccupation went from a medical preoccupation of being a doctor to uh, a consciousness preoccupation. So uh, he set up the... Um, the, the League for Spiritual Discovery. And this was, he was only really enabled to do that by the moment he left Harvard. But I think Alpert stayed there and kept uh, going on until I think he was actually, he was actually thrown out of Harvard. Um, but it was, it was, it was Vile, it was Vile's article, Andrew Wiles' article, who's obviously now, um, you know, a, a, a very famous and, and respected, um, you know, wellness guru, uh, kind of an industry behind him. But, I think he, he regrets it. I know that he, it's something that he has, he has regrets over. With LSD, it was almost like, it seemed that there was always somebody who was more irresponsible than everybody else. Um, and, you know, so you have uh, Stanley, uh, Stanley Cohen, who's uh, criticising um, uh, Hoffer, Hoffer and Osmond, and then Hoffer and Osmond are criticising Leary for being even more responsible than them, and then Leary's criticising uh, Ken Kesey for being even more responsible than him, so there's always <laughs> a kind of, you know, uh, there's always a bad, someone who's, who's, who's doing it even more wrongly than they are. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, but the, 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 um, the, the thing that Humphrey and Osmond and, um, and Abraham Hoffer, in their book Hallucinogens, there's a great thing in the introduction, which is that they, they, having basically lost their entire, or they were just about to lose their entire research career and their, you know, static tenures at, you know, Sasquatch and their safe jobs. One of the things they said, almost, I think, aware of the, the chaos that Leary caused was that, you know, um, one thing that's not going to happen as a result of all of this uh, kerfuffle is that no one's going to forget LSD. And, and that certainly has been true. It's, it's, uh, it has been, uh, it was a, a major blip in the, I mean, Groff laments, you know, 50 years of, of lost research, but, you know, no one was ever going to forget LSD as a result. It was a huge advertising campaign in a sense. To me, the, the whole connection with, with Andrew Weil is interesting. I mean, he also has a, a significant connection with the Esalen Institute in the 1980s. He was there 70s, 80s, who was there all the time doing lots of his writing, given many speeches on all drugs, on psychedelics. And he comes out uh, as pro-psychedelic, mm. at least in the, the material that I've listened to from yeah. the 1980s, which was recorded at, at the Esalen Institute at some point. I one thing I just love about your book is this, as I alluded to earlier, is it's almost like an encyclopedia of all the who's, the who's who's of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and there's yeah. a part in there about one of my favorite writers, Tom Wolfe. He's weirdly conservative. Yes. I didn't understand that. You yes. know, I learned about the project of the 60s yes. through the electric Kool-Aid acid test. He became one of my favorite authors. He has this ex exciting, mm -hmm. and I would say democratic, 
prose style. I mean, he was all about liberating the voice of the author, the voice of the journalist from some boring, mundane, sort of observational recording style into this person with opinions and, uh, and verve and personality. And it was only much later that I understood his anti-liberal tendencies, uh, which were made manifest, of course, in Radical mm. Chic, and then later in the Me Decade, where he writes about Est and he writes about Eslin. So what, what, are, what are your thoughts about Wolf? Well, he's, um, there's a very uh, funny anecdote um, where he, uh, later on, I think he visits uh, Kesey um, at his farm um, and he's wearing a blazer. They're trying to paint a fence or something and uh, <laughs> they ask him if he would hold the paint pot or something and he gets paint on his jacket. And they're like, ha, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so I, I, think he, I think there is that thing of, there is definitely a, a current in the and I, I didn't say I mean there's a lot of socialism in the book um, and t- certainly the, the the Freudian Marxists so Norman O'Brown and um, Herbert Marcuse are very important characters in the book but um, as well there is an aspect of of of, um, of that era which is the kind of libertarian streak um, whereby you know that there is kind of a, a room there for some right-wing elements um and you know i think i guess we have to acknowledge i mean that that some aspect of uh, of their project you know has the you know the, the more anarchic freewheeling aspects of it you know have something to be said for them i suppose and so i think tom wolf comes from that kind of certainly in the 60s i would imagine he was kind of a reconstructed republican in a sense there is that thing and obviously the 80s a lot of those um figures switched quite comfortably into sort of uh, right-wing positions. So, you know, it, you know, it's, it's a complex story. I mean, I, I think that Wolf does the Essendon a terrible disservice, actually. I, I think with the Kool-Aid acid test, he's, he's, in, he's in the mix. You know, he's, he's following Kesey around. He's, he's involved. He, you know, he's, he's actually living it. He, he wasn't, as far as I was aware, he wasn't doing LSD. But, you know, he, he, he's in the flow with everybody else. And he's... But, but, but I think when it comes to the me decade, which is, you know, sort of through, which is this, this famous article that, that you alluded to, I think he's, uh, he's probably not on the cutting edge any longer. And I don't think he has the, um, the, the grasp or the understanding of, of the full political, uh, the full philosophical ideas that lay behind, you know, for instance, the Esalen project. And so I don't think he does it any any uh, any justice and, and Thomas Lash is exactly the same they, they don't understand I mean there are early um, it actually picks up from earlier critiques of Esalen were actually written from within Esalen so uh, I think Sam Keane who was uh, one of the um, was a research assistant at that stage he wrote a very early article on how meditation how can we meditate in a world in which there is Biafra which was the kind of the you know the, the I think it was the, the Nigerian um you know, situation. And I think that to some degree, certainly, I think it looks like certainly against the background of, you know, what Groff was doing with this spiritual emergency, which was, was kind of like, a, you know, a call center for um, people having, you know, difficult psychotic experiences, which, which bordered on the psychedelic. I think there was a sense that, you know, Esalen had picked up that critique and, and had, had, had worked with it. But, but Tom Wolfe comes and he doesn't really understand the, the idea of nowness as it uh, as it was uh, as it was, was being used he doesn't understand 
the Tao, he doesn't stand. So for instance, like Theodore Rozak, who wrote extensively on the counterculture, he actually understands, he actually reads about and he understands the, uh, those currents, you know, the Buddhism and the Vedanta, but, 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 but Wolf doesn't. And he just is a very knee-jerk critique, almost groundless. And then Lash comes on after Tom Wolf. It's almost like you, there's almost a sense of like, you know, it's that sort of book deal. Oh, here we go. Here's an idea that's yeah. out there. Let's, yeah. let's run with it. And I think that the culture was ready for it at that stage. It's the era of um, Dirty Harry, you know, and, and also the era of um, The Shining, when all those ideas that were originally exciting and revolutionary and transformative that came out of the 60s were suddenly like terrifying and, you know, threatening and the dangers of mental health. And yeah, so I think they came at that era and they, they rode with it. So I think at that stage, I think Tom Wolfe is, is, is just, uh, he's going with it. He's not, he's no longer on the understanding. Yeah, a couple of things to un- unpack from what you were saying. You, you talked about this um, Marcuse and uh, another person who were part of the, the Freudian Marxists. Now, what, what I, I, I assume- Norman, Norman O'Brien, yeah. Norman O'Brien. So what about the counterculture is underpinned by the thinkings of the Freudian Marxists? Well, um, the Freudian Marxist was the dominant, the dominant thinking, the dominant philosophical thinking of, of the era in the sense that, you know, um, Marcuse was like, college darling you know he he actually was he went and talked to everybody he was very open so not only was the uh, the culture ready for him but also he was actually he was willing to go out and, and, and talk and obviously they were very involved in the new left but also they were very involved in the um and the, uh, the same preoccupations that were that was fascinating the counterculture since they were very much involved in the psychiatric ideas marcuse went to even went to the um the roundhouse and took part in the dialectics of liberation conference in london so which was like the kind of hippie central you know the big powwow when all the brothers um came and uh, you know talked about their ideas they were fashionable but uh, norman o'brien even was he was read jim morrison was reading norman o'brien so so they were they were part of the mix basically. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm asking they're, they're, why why Marxism in general was uh, interesting within the context of the of the counterculture because you know I think about it today, and there is a significant counterculture uh, probably within the United States and, and most sort of uh, like countries right, but that hardly anybody is bringing up uh, Marx. That's right. Well, I mean, over here we have. Uh, Socialism. I mean, I think that with the with um, Bernie Sanders, you have something reasonably close. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for, in terms of the counterculture, I mean, the, the best way to distill it is there's a Norman, a brilliant Norman O'Brien quote, where he says that the ego is the first private property, and so there's this idea that the whole drive of the whole culture from LSD through all the different techniques of meditation, the way that yoga was used, flotation tanks, everything is all directed to this thing of ego dissolution. Um, and so, and at this point, these, these theorists, I mean, they, they are they're quintessentially theorists of, of the self, of, of this kind of ego dissolution. 
And what they were entranced by with Freud, most especially, was the idea of liberation and sexual liberation. Their reading of Freud was very much about the possibilities that, that Freud um, laid open. And the big thing for Norman O'Brien was what was called polymorphous perversity. The idea was, Freud's idea was that um, sexuality became genital, that you, when you start as a child, your engagement, your whole engagement with reality is erotic. But through the process of society's uh, inculcation of you, all that wonderful stuff is, is basically drawn down into your genital experience. And that was a big thing, certainly for 60s feminism, um, for studies of the female orgasm, and obviously for how that relates to the Wilhelm Reich. But um, it was this big drive, essentially, that the Marcuse and Norman O'Brien represent, which is this fleeing to or this dissolution of, of the ego. You know, I actually view in the book Esselen as, as being, you know, you only have to watch um, the videos. Uh, there's a wonderful video I watched today of, of everybody at Esselen, um, which documents, you know, the time, uh, you know, the, activities at Esalen and there's a lot of people in the cooking in the kitchens and working in the gardens you know there's a very much an integrative which is uh, a, 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 in a bet in the best sense a kind of an ego focused a kind of healthy ego that mm -hmm. Esalen represents and and I will see this as, as why Esalen survived where the counterculture burnt up because the whole impulse of the counterculture is this kind of explosive dissolution of ego what what happens is a kind of Icarus-like situation, whereas I think Esselen what has worked over the years on a more, you know, integrated, you know, Jungian in the in the truest sense um, method of, of 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 aligning, you know, with, with with those you know higher ideas rather than just being completely swallowed up by them. So uh, you know. I, I would I would offer too that part of the reason that Esselen survived is because their leadership was so decidedly unguru. You have this line in your uh, book, male gurus who lorded over the counterculture, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Chogyam Trungpa, Muktananda, Rajneesh, Sachinanda, and even Bhagavan Das, they all abused their position and manipulated their pupils for sex. Now, with uh, the Esalen Institute, you have Michael Murphy, basically mostly interested in meditating and uh, intellectual ideas. And then you have Dick Price, who was just a very solid person, extremely interested in Gestalt therapy, extremely interested in the Gestalt of nature. There's never been a story about either of these men not only uh, abusing their power in order to gain sex or to gain some sort of followers, but there's not been stories of any kind of, you know, that personal vindictiveness that comes from misuse of power. So Esalen, in a certain sense, was was quite lucky in that way. But yeah, I'll talk a little bit more about the Esalen yeah, Institute and, and why it was important enough to get a chapter within your book uh, about counterculture. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of, you know, the very few kind of global power centers, as I kind of imagine it in my mind. It sits very uh, comfortably within the, the narrative. One of the, uh, I think Jeffrey Kapal is, who's wrote the kind of the definitive biography of, of Esalen, he, he points out that, um, that it's different from the counterculture. And I, I definitely agree with that, but it, it's almost like it's come from the same, the same roots. 
um, the same preoccupations. I mean, you don't have to see the, the relation of Aldous Huxley to it or Alan Watts or, you know, any of those key foundational figures. But then it, it doesn't, it's almost like uh, in some situations, it seems like it's a, a canvas where um, countercultural events play out. Um, so, you know, there's, we have kind of, you know, incursions from Manson and, you know, um, you know uh, the Keezy visiting with the Merry Pranksters or, you know, uh, Leary showing up. And I think in a way it's a, it's, it's, it's a very... I, I think it's very nice. It's, it's a very nice example of how those ideas can actually thrive rather than in a sense of someone like, I mean, there is an aspect of the book where I do talk about the catastrophes of the counterculture and, and it's quite amusing. There is an amusing aspect to it, which is, you know, you see the disaster that these, uh, the situations that happen and, and, and uh, um, the hate Ashbury and, uh, you know, and, and Altamont, and, and, and there is a kind of a fascinating, and with Manson, there is a, you know, a hilarious and fascinating um, tragedy, uh, but to, to them, to the excess. But, you know, Essendon seems to mm. manage to work through the same um, load, but do it in a way that it can, has, has still survived. I love that quote that you, uh, that you unfurled for, for us several minutes ago. But would you say that again about the... Was it the, uh, the Norman O'Brien, the, uh, the, the ego is the first private property? I think that's sure. it. I, I think that's it. And that's just so that's yeah. fucking yeah. brilliant. Yeah. The ego is the first private property because this, this question of ego is just so central to the project of the counterculture and the, the project of the counterculture is so central to any discussion that we have about mainstream culture in general. You know, I gave a talk to the psychedelic society of, of, of what we can learn from that, that era. And I think it, if we can, um, if we can make, if we can learn from that sort of pinnacle ascent of the Himalayas of consciousness, um, but that whole fabric of the whole era and all the interlocking disciplines and, uh, you know, if we can learn from the mistakes that they made, then hopefully we can we can make some progress. We can get up onto that high plateau that Abraham Maslow talked about. Mm-hmm. Matthew Ingram, thanks for joining us today on Voices of Eslon. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to Voices of Eslon. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby, Michelle McCrary, Michelle Broderick, and Tanya Ruse. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.